You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 437 of this podcast. Today is... Saturday, July 23rd, 2022. And today we're going to talk about distinguishing between peacemakers and pacifists. Distinguishing peacemakers from pacifists. It'll be fun. I promise. I might ruffle a few feathers, but even that also will be fun. And therein uh, is probably at least part of the reason why you listen to this podcast. But first of all, let's talk about what is peace? What does it mean to seek peace and pursue it? Jesus is said to be our Prince of Peace. So peace is a good thing. We want peace. Those who are peacemakers are blessed according to the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount, there is no getting around the fact that peace is a good thing. But what is peace and what does it mean to make it? If you're going to be a peacemaker or if you're going to recognize who the peacemakers are, how do you know when the person you're dealing with is in fact a peacemaker? Or if you want to be a peacemaker, what does it mean to make peace. You have to know what peace is in order to be able to make it. And it's kind of like if I were to ask one of my kids, hey, can you go make a pizza? And they're like, yes, I will be a pizza maker. Of course, that's not what uh, we find in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pizza makers. Although I think it's inferred and implied. But let's suppose I say, hey guys, go make a pizza. And they say, okay, we'll do. We're on it. Absolutely. Thanks, dad. Okay. Do you know what a pizza is? No, no idea. None whatsoever. No, we don't. Actually, that was going to be our question, but we figured we would just kind of figure it out on the way. So, of course, there are lots of different kinds of pizza, just like I think there are different kinds of peace. And different ingredients can go into peace, just like different ingredients can go into pizza. But you have to generally know what a pizza is. And you can't just say any old thing you might put in your mouth is pizza, it is not all the same. If you hand me a ham sandwich or a bowl of cold cereal, I will tell you that is not pizza. It is also food, but it is not pizza. So we have to know also with peace, what is peace and what is not peace. And you can't just call any old thing peace just because you want it to be so, or because you don't want to admit that you don't know what peace is. By contrast, what does it mean to contend for the faith? And also, along similar lines, what is militancy? To describe somebody as militant is to say that they are warlike, but is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? How do we know if we don't know what peace is? How do we know what conflict is or when it's a good shoot, so to speak? You offend somebody, you do something that upsets them, How do you know when you have conflict? Because as much as lies within you, you did not strive to live peaceably with all men. 
on the one hand, that's your fault. That's on you, buddy. You need to get better. You need to try again. Do better. Try harder. Let's go again. But what is militancy? And do we need to be careful if that term, that moniker, that pejorative is bandied about sometimes by those who are not correctly defining what peace is in a biblical sense? In our day, I would say we here in America, living in the year 2022 and for some time, too often conflate being peaceable with pacifism. We get those confused. We think that to be a peacemaker is the same thing as being a pacifist. And I say this as someone whose father was raised Mennonite, whose aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents were very much influenced by generations of Mennonitism. I say this with conviction and with familiarity. Pacifism is not the same thing as being peaceable. Pacifism is not the same thing as being peaceable. Now, pacifists would disagree. They would say, ah, no, but what you're saying is peaceable is not actually peaceableness. We are the keepers of the peace. We are the makers and the keepers and the claimants to peaceableness. If we're not peaceable, then nobody's peaceable. Well, hold on. We'll get into it and we'll just see about that. But I would say too often we conflate being peaceable with pacifism, and they are not the same thing, certainly not biblically. Not all peace is peace in the way that God calls us to pursue and seek peace. Another thing that we conflate all too often in our day, especially, is manliness with malignancy. Manliness is treated as if it is some kind of a condition. You know, ask your doctor about whatever, whatever the treatment is, uh, more femininity, getting in touch with your feminine side, being nicer. <laughs> if you too are experiencing these symptoms, uh, which essentially add up to masculinity, being a man, ask your doctor about peaceableness. Manliness is not malignancy. Just because you are masculine, that does not mean that there's something wrong with you. It doesn't mean that you're toxic, as a matter of course. Men and women, masculinity and femininity, can be toxic, if you will, if you prefer that term, when they are on our own sinful nature's terms, with no regard for what God says, what God calls us to, how he frames our being. God should be the one to define what is manliness. And we are making a royal mess of it. In our day here in the year 2022 in the United States of America, we are making a mess of trying to redefine manliness and womanliness. And we have no idea what a woman is. Even a nominee for the Supreme Court of the United States, when asked if she can define what a woman is, because it is terribly relevant to the whole transgenderism, LGBTQ movement, agenda, conflict in society. We didn't start the fire. We didn't start the fight. Speaking of being peaceable, they are the ones trying to upend and pervert gender and sexuality, etc., etc. But when this Supreme Court justice, Katanji Brown-Jackson, was asked if she could define what a woman is, she said, I cannot because I am not a biologist. 
I'm not a biologist either, but that's nonsense. That's just plain silly. If we need biologists to tell us what a woman is, to tell us what a man is, then some of us are in some real trouble. Others of us might be in some real trouble if we can't, on any terms, at any point, embrace necessary conflict which has already been instigated, has already been started by virtue of other people's vices. But moderation is a virtue, whether we're talking about a time for war or a time for peace. And what you don't get with moderation done correctly is you don't get splitting the difference when it's a time for war, where we're going to make war half-heartedly or we're going to seek peace half-heartedly. And what you don't get with moderation is when it's a time for peace, you make war half-heartedly and you make peace half-heartedly. Now, moderation being a virtue means that when it is a time for war, you recognize that it is a time for war and you make war as is appropriate. And when it is a time for peace, you make peace as is appropriate, not double-mindedly where you're doing both and at the same time. No, that's confusion. But wisdom, when we ask God for wisdom along the lines of James encouraging us in the first chapter, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God for wisdom who gives generously to all without finding fault. When we ask God for wisdom and believe that God has given it wholeheartedly without doubting, which is a good thing. It is not a good thing for every sentence to include maybe, perhaps, possibly, kind of, sort of, because we're always hedging our bets. No, let your yes be yes and your no be no. That's not arrogance. That is clarity. That's important. But it is not, <laughs> it is not being clear to be single-minded in the sense that we don't recognize a time for peace, and we don't recognize a time for war along the lines of Ecclesiastes. It is not wise to think it is only ever one, it is only ever the other, when Ecclesiastes makes very, very clear as part of all scripture being breathed out that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work, every good work. It is not wise to say there's only ever a time for war, there's only ever a time for peace. As a slight aside, I'm listening to a Great Courses title on Audible that I just picked up, uh, oh, I don't know, seven years ago. <laughs> and it's been sitting unused, unlistened to, neglected in the library for a long, long time. I see it every now and then when I'm trying to look back through what titles I picked up on sales and things like that and haven't gotten around to, haven't started yet. And so yesterday I decided, hey, you know what? I'm in the mood for something different. And so I'm going to listen to this great courses work on the Norsemen. The Norsemen, Understanding Vikings and Their Culture by a Professor Michael D.C. Drought, Wheaton College. Uh, actually, I, I correct myself. Not great courses, The Modern Scholar. So this is in the Modern Scholar series and it is a lecture uh, series on the Vikings. So I'm listening to Professor Michael D.C. Drought, 
who does a fine job. Actually, if you listen to him on double speed, he sounds an awful lot like Ben Shapiro, at least on a good day, uh, when Ben Shapiro's in a good mood and not being just growly and overworked and underrested and grumpy with everybody. Uh, the Norsemen, understanding Vikings and their culture, makes much of, on the one hand, something of a trend in recent decades to try and rehabilitate the image of the Vikings, uh, emphasizing that they were traders, right? They, they were traders and they were farmers and you know, they had great technology and they wrote great poetry and you know, oh wait a second! When 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 we read, <laughs> when we read the poetry, uh, it just so happens to have a lot in there about killing and pillaging and all the stuff that they're actually known for, uh, more so. And so, actually, as the good professor points out, it would be wrong to look at them as either being traitors or being raiders. They were both. They alternated back and forth. They might be trading and doing commerce one day, and then the next day get bored and be talking amongst themselves and say, ah, you know what? How about we go knock off that monastery in uh, <laughs> the next week? What do you say? Yeah, let's do that. You know, and we'll carry off the booty and then we'll trade, right? That we'll go back to, to trading after we do a little raiding and then we'll just alternate back and forth. But Norse mythology makes much of fighting and war and even their hereafter, their idea of heaven, if you will, is uh, Valhol, uh, Valhalla, where all of the warriors go, or the best warriors are handpicked to feast and drink and party forever. Uh, the Vikings made much of war being central to their culture, important to their conception of themselves. And so then the question is, do they have peace as a value in the hereafter? And for Christians, we are looking forward to peace forever with God and with his saints in the restored creation. This creation is going to pass away. God is going to do away with it. He's going to do a power cycle, if you will, and reload the operating system. And we also, we will get cleaned up and reconfigured to where we no longer have a sinful nature to reckon with, and we no longer have the effects of sin, sickness, disease, frailties, temptations. There will be no more sorrow there. But that's then, right? That's the coming reality. And what we're living in right now is still, for one, a broken creation that God has allowed to be broken by sin because he will get glory for himself. That's his good pleasure. His sovereign will is that he will get good pleasure and glory from what his overall overarching plan and purpose is for creation. But for now, part of it is that the creation is broken by the effects of sin. And we also are contending with a sinful nature. And we have to reckon with that, whether we're men or women. It is not just men who have a sinful nature, by the way, going back to an earlier point. But Given that we live in a broken creation, as I talked about in yesterday's episode concerning animal death before the fall and nefesh, which is the breath of life or the spirit or the soul, depending on how you want to translate it, the psyche, if you will, we are nefesh. We are living beings, creatures. And 
for us to encounter animals that might attack and try to kill us or other sinful fallen human beings. Like let's say, for instance, there was a revival of Viking sentiment and the Vikings come to your town and they're going to knock off your church or they're going to attack the bank or they're going to attack your place of business or they're going to, they're going to attack your home. You know, we have to figure out what to make of that, what to do with that. Do we, if we're pacifists, turn the other cheek or do we fight? Is there a time to fight? Is there a time to make war in defense of your property, your person, your neighbors, your country? That's an important question to ask as I'm reading this about the Vikings and how they were such a terror and such a menace to increasingly Christian Europe and elsewhere. But there's this great story, actually, and I want to know more about it. It's just kind of a passing reference in the lectures. There's this great story of a converted Viking who becomes this missionary to Iceland, and he helps to Christianize Iceland. And you know, you might be more familiar with missionaries going, risking life and limb, and even losing their lives and their limbs, being missionaries to violent tribes and pagan peoples. Well, this missionary, being a converted Viking himself, had a little bit of a different um, apologetic, if you will. Uh, single combat, actually. He would challenge pagans to duels on the auspices of, uh, I guess, a similar sentiment to David and Goliath. We'll see if your God is stronger or my Christ is stronger. Fight me. And so they fought and he won. And that was persuasive. And uh, (laughs) I don't see anyone uh, promoting that as a method of evangelizing in our day. That's probably for the best, but uh, that is one way to do it. That is that is definitely different. Uh, the Lord works in mysterious ways, maybe, possibly. Uh, I won't go that far, but it is interesting. The fact is, regardless how we feel about that, we here now today as Christians living in the 21st century in the United States of America, we are too stuck on being nice. And that makes us vulnerable in a way that is not good and is not wise and is actually not especially holy either. We are too stuck on being nice. And ours is uh, generally a perverse time. And that's not including... Uh, only sex. Usually when we call somebody a pervert, almost always actually, when we call someone a pervert, what we mean is that they have deviant notions about sex. They have prurient interest in sex and they are immoral with regards to their sexuality in what they say and what they do. But ours is a perverse age in more than just our sexual ethic. And I think When we say that, when we say there's a lot of perversion these days, we have to recognize there's another side to the coin of calling something perverse. You know, take that coin and on the one side is perversion. You flip it over, the other side of the coin means that there is an authentic version. 
If there's perversion, there must be an authentic version, something which is true instead of false, something that is beautiful instead of ugly, something that is good instead of evil. And a lot of our kicking against the goad with the perversion of our day, of everything, of art and music and politics and business and the family and academia, of culture, our kicking against that goad is not first and foremost that we are pursuing perversion for its own sake, but that so many of us in rebellion love perversity because we hate the authentic article. We hate the authentic version. We're at war with the standard. That's why we enjoy the corrupt thing, because we don't like being told that there is truth and beauty and goodness. But on this point, actually, I would ask you to consider Mark chapter 3, 22 to 30. And I quote, The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, with regards to Jesus, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he, being Jesus, called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. End quote. Now, earlier in this same chapter, we have the account of Jesus healing the man with a withered hand. And I think that's important to note as well. And then I want to talk a little bit about what's here in Mark chapter 3 and what these things should mean to us. How do we understand who Christ is? How do we understand who we are? How do we understand what we're called to and what is good and what is true and what is beautiful? But verses 1 to 6 of Mark chapter 3, again, he, being Jesus, entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. So this is some kind of deformity, right? Physical deformity. He's probably born with it. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him, end quote. So going back to, or down to, since it's later in the same chapter, Mark three twenty-two to 30, you have the scribes claiming that Jesus is casting out demons by the prince of demons. That's 
what they come up with. That's their negative attack ad. You know, if this were politics, <laughs> this would be just a quick 30 second commercial of Jesus uh, in all black and white, kind of a grainy photo or grainy video of Jesus doing miracles. And then you've got the voiceover in a sinister tone talking about, you know, Jesus says he's for the lost. He claims he came for the sick and that they need the physician. But who is he really? Do you actually know the real Jesus? He casts out demons by the prince of demons. He's possessed by Beelzebul. He has a demon. He has an unclean spirit. That's their messaging. That's their talking point. Because they can't deny that he is doing miracles. Notice that they don't deny that he has performed mighty works. They don't deny that he has healed the sick, or he has caused the lame to be able to walk, or he has given sight back to the blind. They don't deny these things. What they say is, well, yeah, but where'd the power come from? Answer me that. And at the root of it is jealousy. At the root of it is envy. At the root of it is he's cutting into their business. And their business is to be thought well of. Their business is that they're the ones who get the sweet book deal. And they're the ones who have the favored place of honor when they come to the synagogue. They're the ones who are called rabbi and they just bask in the glow of how good that sounds. But Jesus rebukes them. He calls them to him. Notice that too. What did he say actually? Do you wonder? Did he gesture? Did he hold a finger up or hold a hand up like Neo from the Matrix telling the agents to bring it? Is that what it was? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not saying he did. I'm just saying I like to think that he did something like that. Maybe he holds his hand up and he gestures. Or maybe he says, come here, I want to talk to you. And he corrects them because what they're saying is silly. If you're right that I'm casting out demons by the prince of demons, then there is a civil war going on among the demonic. And if that's the case, you should be happy, actually. Why do you look so upset? You should be happy because if the demons are now fighting against one another, well, that means this is the end. Their time has come. They're going to destroy one another and themselves. But also, too, notice he gives an analogy that I think Vikings would understand intuitively. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Now, what's this? This is some robbers break in and they catch you off guard and you're a strong man. You're a dangerous man. You could do some real damage. You could mess them up. But because they catch you off guard, they tie you up and they have their way with your household and you're helpless. You just, all you have to do, all you can do is silently wait until They've had their fun. They've got what they came for. Maybe you can beg and plead. But this is presented as self-evident that you have to restrain a strong man. Like everyone knows that. Now, they haven't necessarily thought of it in 
a spiritual context like this. But everybody knows you have to tie up a strong man. Why? Because he's going to fight you. That's why you've come to steal. You've come to pillage. You've come to hurt him. You've come to hurt his family, his servants, his friends, to damage his property and his person. He'll fight you. And he'll be right to. And nobody will fault him for it. What's up with that? If pacifism is quite correct, if that's all there is to it, if that is all that needs to be said about peace. Also, what's the principle here? You have a right to your own property. That's inherent to what Jesus says here. You have a right to your property and to your person. And if someone breaks in trying to damage or steal either, the only way they can really stop you is if they tie you up. Moving on. Or, again, going back up. Verses 1 through 6. He literally does say to the man with a withered hand, come here with authority. Not, can I get you to come here? Hey, um, are you busy? No, direct. Authority. Come here. And the man does. And I'm sure, based on what happens next, he's very happy that he did. He didn't argue the point with Jesus. But this is why the Pharisees want to destroy him. And it's why they go out from this and immediately start planning how to destroy him with the Herodians because Jesus embarrasses them publicly for all to see. They end up looking like fools. Never mind that it's their own fault. Christ sets an example for us here which if we are too stuck on being nice, we miss. Christ sets an example here where if we are committed to the pacifism thing, we will miss it. Now, we could get into a <laughs> examination of what all assumptions, like the one I mentioned earlier, should be taken for granted, which are quite correct. Was Jesus wearing a black trench coat and black leather pants and a black t-shirt and sunglasses? And did he make a motion with his hand like Neo from The Matrix? Maybe not. But in some sense, he is challenging the scribes and the Pharisees to single combat. Or, if not single combat, all y'all, come at me. I have a question for you. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? And they don't want to pick up the gauntlet. They don't want to accept that challenge. And what does it say in verses 1 through 6? He looked around them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Now, the John Piper crowd will say that grieving is where our emphasis needs to be. Grieving at the hardness of heart is all that is appropriate for the Christian. And we should never look at the equivalent in our day of the scribes and the Pharisees with anger because we're not Jesus. To that, I would say, show me in the text. Show me that book, chapter, verse, because maybe I'm missing it. But I don't think I am missing it. I think maybe those who hold that view, including John Piper, are missing that it says Jesus looked around at them with anger. 
Yes, he's grieved, but it's not either or. He can be grieved and angry at the same time. And it can be appropriate to engage in a conflict like this. Yes, even feeling anger. It can be appropriate because Jesus did it. We do have to take care. John Piper is right about that. I don't disagree that we need to be careful. All I'm saying is it is not moderation if we think there's only a time for peace, there's only a time for mourning, there's only a time for embrace, there's only a time to be gentle. Sometimes what is needed is a firmer hand. And Jesus demonstrates that sinlessly, which some will say is proof that we can't do it because we're not sinless like Jesus was and is and forever will be. I would say Jesus doing this sinlessly is an argument that it can be done sinlessly. It can be done without sin. Be angry and do not sin, as we read. But moving on, some other passages which come up with regards to pacifism, which we can't ignore, we have to reckon with, we have to be transformed by, we must, we must. Luke 6, 29, Jesus gave the following admonition. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Matthew 5.39, Jesus says a very similar thing. Maybe it's the same instance, and it's just written down differently by Matthew and by Luke. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. What about that? What does that mean? Gary DeMar, I think, explains this well when he points out that being slapped in the face is an insult. Being slapped in the face is degrading and disrespectful and humiliating and, yes, infuriating, but it's not fatal. It's not an attack on your life. It might be an attack on your reputation. It might be an attack on your self-control. It's probably to bait you into a larger conflict, but it is not an attempt at your life, unless the trap is to try and provoke you into a back and forth, which will then, if people are just walking into it after the slap and right before you retaliate, will possibly appear as though you're the one who started it instead of you being the one who was provoked. That is actually the problem with people who are passive-aggressive, actually. And that is something that the pacifist crowd has to reckon with. Because they give up entirely on active aggression, they very often resort to passive aggression. And then, if they provoke a conflict and the other person retaliates, they say, ah, I'm being persecuted. No, not necessarily. Maybe, but not necessarily. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. But don't be passive aggressive. And then say, when you've provoked a conflict through passive aggressive means, you're being persecuted. It may be you actually were being a pissant and you had it coming (laughs) when the person got upset. You knew what you were doing. You were trying to bait them. Maybe you didn't physically slap them, but rhetorically, procedurally, symbolically, Jesus says, resist not evil. He says, turn to him the other cheek also. 
And if he takes away your cloak, again, that could be a taunt. That could be like kids on a playground. I'm going to take this just to see if I can provoke you to a response. What are you going to do? Let's play keep away. What are you going to do? It could be that what we're dealing with is, again, an attempt to bait us into a larger conflict. And as Gary DeMar says, we shouldn't take the bait. But what does that mean? You don't repay in kind, but it might mean, like Jesus, dealing with the scribes and the Pharisees, you say, come here. I want to talk to you for a minute. I have some hard questions for you, which are going to expose what you're really trying to do so that it's clear. I'm not going to take the bait, but I am going to confront you for God's glory in the interest of truth and beauty and goodness. Also, here, as with other places, we need to consider context. What is the context of Luke 6.29? What is the context of 5.39? Is it indicative of all of Christian life in any potential conflict for all of the New Testament period until Christ returns or calls us home? Or should we interpret these things as having, based on sound hermeneutics, the whole counsel of God, should we interpret these words from Jesus, from the Messiah, from the Savior, from our Lord, as being in a particularly narrow application, absolutely transformative, instructive, corrective, but yet not all there is to say on the question of conflict, clearly. Moving on to another passage, which is often brought up in discussions of pacifism, John 18.36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. So this came up in a discussion this week with a dear brother who I love and I appreciate, and he's got some great things to say about a broad range of topics pertaining to Christian life and thought. We do disagree on this, and I still love and respect him and appreciate him anyways. But that is to say, my love and appreciation and respect for him doesn't mean that I'm going to pass over the subject, especially as important as it is to what I'm doing with this podcast, what I'm doing with my writing, how I'm raising my sons, and how I myself was raised, to be honest. My dad having been raised Mennonite, I didn't grow up in the Mennonite church, and yet I would say that, as I told my friend this week, you can take the mullets out of the Mennonite church. It's quite another thing to take the Mennonite thinking and theology and ecclesiology and anthropology out of the mullets, especially if the mullets for maybe even 500 years were Mennonites. It's a part of who we are. Yes, even the pacifism. But my kingdom is not of this world. What does that mean? What does Jesus mean? My kingdom is not of this world. Also, what does it mean that he says it slightly different shortly thereafter? My kingdom is not from the world. It's not of the world. It's not from the world. And yet we are in the world. We are sojourners. Yes. But here's a great point. My neighbor 
J.P. Chavez was making the other day, something he recommended to me, which I still need to watch or read. I don't remember which, but I still need to engage with that this weekend. Consider Abraham, a sojourner, an exile of sorts. God tells him to go, and he goes in faith, and it's counted to him as righteousness. Does Abraham, being in exile, a sojourner, a stranger in a strange land, prevent him from getting involved in politics, local politics? Consider the situation with his nephew Lot and Lot's household and his servants being taken captive in this conflict between these kings over here and those kings over there. They're having a war. They're having a fight. Lot and his household are captured and they're prisoners. And Abraham hears about it. And what does Abraham do? He doesn't say, I'm a sojourner. He doesn't say, I'm a stranger in a strange land. More's the pity about Lot. He has his men grab weapons and gird up their loins. And they go and fight. And not only do they fight and get Lot and his household free, they decide the outcome of that war between these kings over here and those kings over there. Abraham's contribution is the decisive factor in that war. So there's a point. Also, too, how could it be so out of character, either if we're adopting the pacifistic view in the New Testament, how could it be so out of character for a Christian or for one of God's people to ever pick up a sword, to ever pick up a weapon and use deadly force to neutralize a threat when God not just gives permission, but commands Israel to make war against nations and peoples in Canaan. Did God change from Old Testament to New Testament? Surely not. But there's a kind of insinuation, which at least we have to be careful about. Don't accuse necessarily pacifists of necessarily being guilty of this, but be careful because you could imply that the God of the Old Testament is either not the same God of the New Testament or that he changed. He matured. He grew up. He repented in the way that we repent because he was in error. He was a different God or he just hadn't matured. He hadn't become fully good yet. That can't be. That just can't be. Moving on, Luke chapter 22, verse 36. Again, Jesus says, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Now try this on for size. Let's say we're looking at the sending out of missionaries, evangelists today. Does Jesus say, let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one? In that case, or does Jesus say, let the one who has no gun, no firearm, no handgun, sell his cloak and buy one? And yes, I am being intentionally provocative here because that's the implication of the text. For our equivalent, you wouldn't go out and buy a sword for self-defense or deterrence. You would buy a gun, a handgun, a semi-automatic handgun, actually. If what Jesus says about someone striking you on the cheek and turning the other also 
if what Jesus says about resisting not evil, if what Jesus says about his kingdom not being of this world means that we are never allowed to defend ourselves or one another under any circumstances, explain to me why he says, let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Why does he say that? That's an important question, particularly when we come to Romans 13, 3 to 4, when the Apostle Paul is writing. And I quote, Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will have his approval. For he is God's servant to your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not carry the sword in vain. He is God's servant, an agent of retribution to the wrongdoer. So the governing authority would be civil authority. That's clear. And yes, Paul will be put to death by civil authorities unjustly. And that does not change a whit of what is said here, that the governing authority is given by God. No authority is possessed without God allowing the person in authority to have that authority. And the authority is given to governments to reward those who do good and to punish those who do bad. The governing authority, the civil authority, is God's servant for your good. What is for your good about the governing authority bearing a sword for something? Because we're assured he does not carry the sword in vain. He doesn't carry that sword for nothing. And again, you should read here for functional equivalent in our day, not a sword, but a gun. He does not carry a handgun in vain. It's not for nothing that he's packing heat. He is God's servant, an agent of retribution to the wrongdoer. But somehow that must be for your good. It must be for your good that the governing authority carries arms to take retribution against the wrongdoer. So in a scenario in which I being a strong man, someone breaks in, my wife calls the police, I get overpowered, caught by surprise, tied up. The police show up, packing heat, strapped, locked, loaded, ready. They are there for my good. They are there for my family's good. They are servants for my good, for our good, for your good. That's what it means that they are public servants. But they are God's servant, this says, for your good, for my good. And the one who is doing wrong, who's broken into my house, who's trying to tie me up so that I can't fight him, so I can't stop him, should be afraid when the police show up. That is the correct response. They should be afraid because the police are showing up with arms and deadly force to do good to my family and I. How? By restraining the one who does wrong, the one who does evil. Their job is to resist evil explicitly. That is to say, Matthew 5.39, in context, cannot mean that there is no place in the New Testament period for 
resisting evil or defending oneself. Otherwise, Romans 13 makes no sense. And yet we can't say we have to pick one or the other. They both have to be true all at the same time. And that takes work. That's where you study to show yourselves approved workmen who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, because otherwise it's very easy to wrongly handle the word of truth. And again, there are categories here that we have got to become acquainted with, men. There are categories of things and ideas and concepts which we must know and be familiar with. For instance, good and evil, truth and falsehood, war and peace, obedience and disobedience, authenticity and perversion. We must embrace what God says about these things. Therein we will have wisdom. Therein we will have a good testimony. Therein we will find life and happiness and holiness and health by God's grace. That's all the time I've got for this episode, though. I got to run. It's a Saturday morning. As a quick aside, just a couple of brief points, actually. For one, we've been reshuffling the deck here, trying to accommodate the recession. Yes, the recession is on. It's here, and we got to make sense of it. But I do believe we are going to be selling our pickup uh, on my days off coming up. That will clear out a auto loan we pay every month. Otherwise, that'll reduce our insurance costs. Josiah is going to be getting his learner's permit anytime now. And it might be best if his vehicle to drive, to learn in, is a used vehicle maybe something that's paid off. (laughs) Uh, So we're going to sell our pickup. It's served us well. It's in good shape, good condition. It's a great vehicle. It's just time that we let it go. And also too, some other exciting things in our household. We just changed up our trash service and there will be some savings there monthly, which is great. A vendor came by, knocked on the door here several weeks ago, asked if we would be interested in switching. Here's what our rate is. What are you paying right now? Oh, well, we're paying almost twice that, actually. So, yes. Yes, we will switch to you. Also, too, there is now fiber in our neighborhood, fiber optic internet. And I looked at the prices last night. I was curious. I'd gotten something in the mail, and I just moving it around my desk, wanting to remember it, but not having time to look at it just yet. And I looked last night and we had essentially two options as I saw it with as much as we use the internet here for school, for work, for play, for research, for podcasting, for writing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We could either go with a one gig plan and save about 40 bucks compared with Comcast Or we could go with the 2.3 gig plan and pay about 50 bucks more, but have the fastest internet we have ever had. And uh, so fun question for you. We'll see if you can guess 
which way I went. The answer may surprise you. But in any event, I'm excited to switch. We'll try a different supplier. They offer a free modem. They don't charge some kind of a dumb rental fee for it every month. Allo Fiber is the name of the company. And there's no contract, so we can cancel any time if we decide we don't like it. I have a feeling we will like it. I'm excited to see if we see a big performance increase. I might have just given away what we went with. Okay, I'll just tell you. 2.3 gigs is awesome. And I want to find out if we can get stuff done faster. If we can get the things that we have to do faster uh, accomplished, more quickly accomplished, then we can get more things accomplished or we can get done what needs to get done and move on with stuff that needs doing off of the computer. So either way, it's a win-win as I see it and well worth $50 more. If we don't really notice a difference, then we'll trim it back to the one gig speed, which is about where we're at right now with Xfinity. I think that's the fastest they were offering, but it's old coax. And I don't think it does as well when everybody in the neighborhood is using it versus fiber, or at least that's what I'm told. So that'll be fun. That'll be exciting. I think it'll be worth the switch. We'll have a little bit of an, a little bit of an early termination fee, but not as much as what it will save us monthly. So it's worth it. But in any event, as I said, I got to run. I got to go. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.